true of most of us in this room as well. And also, there's no area in which it's more important than we go to the Scriptures for our direction and insight, because there's no other dimension of human life in which human reason, apart from divine revelation, is more likely to miss the mark and to go astray. Now, extramarital sex, premarital or extramarital sex, is something which in large measure is glamorized by the world, by the media in particular. I read a survey recently which indicated that on television programs, 85% of the suggested or implied sexual acts between consenting adults are between people who are unmarried. Really wasn't until the movie Fatal Attraction came out that anyone added a dose of reality to this issue. And that was a helpful contributor to the discussion because it indicated uh, what Solomon's point is in Proverbs chapter 5 that outside of sex, there is no such thing, outside of marriage, there is no such thing as safe sex. It simply doesn't exist. Safe sex outside of marriage is an illusion, it's a fantasy. Reminds me, and if you listen to the world in this, we're going to get burned. Reminds me of a story I heard about an air traffic controller in the South. He gave instructions to a plane on the runway, said, uh, Flight uh, 78, you are now cleared to take off on runway 29er. Moments later, he speaks to an airplane in the air and says, uh, Flight 113, you are now cleared to land on runway 29er. And the pilot of the second plane says, Hey, wait a minute. You just told us to land on the same runway you told them to take off on. There's a moment of silence, and the controller says, Yeah, I guess I did. Y'all be careful now, you hear? And that's the whole concept of safe sex is all about. If you buy into that, you're going to get hurt. I think the reason it's important and helpful to turn to Proverbs chapter 5 is that we hear in this chapter from Solomon. Now, Solomon was a man who was married to 300 wives and had 700 concubines. So here's a man who'd been around the block a few times, had a wealth of experience, personal experience to draw from. And we're also told that he was the wisest man that ever lived, had the most insight into what makes life work and what causes it to fall apart of any man who ever lived. And so this combination of wisdom and experience is something that we can benefit from and draw from. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 5 together. Now, as you're aware, the Old Testament concept of wisdom really refers not just to knowledge but skill in handling life. The word wisdom was used, for instance, to describe the craftsmen who worked on the temple, who were skilled in working with metal and wood. And there's no area uh, in life today which is being handled more ineptly and with more disastrous consequences than uh, sex. And that's why we need help from Solomon in this regard. Now, Proverbs chapter 5 is divided up easily into three sections, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 14, and verses 15 through 23. And Solomon has one major point to make in each one of these three sections. Now, in verses 1 through 6, he simply wants to get our attention. His basic word in this opening paragraph is listen up and listen tight. Pay attention to what I have to say. Put down that bulletin, look at Proverbs 5, and pay attention to what I've got to say. Now, you notice he begins in verse 1 by addressing this to his son. He says, my son... Pay attention to my wisdom. First nine chapters of Proverbs are a series of father-son chats, information and truth that Solomon wanted to get across to his own sons. And that's a reminder, by the way, that this is our responsibility as fathers and our responsibility as mothers to impart sex education to our children. This is the first sex education manual ever published. 
It's our responsibility to do that. I uh, read a survey this, just this last week in which uh, uh, men who had fallen into uh, extramarital affairs were surveyed, and 76% of them said that sex was never discussed in their homes when they grew up, not once. Uh, I was also reminded of a mother in our growth group who last summer with her teenage daughter spent the summer with another mother and her teenage daughter uh, carrying out a study together on this subject and preparing their daughters for the challenges of uh, teenage uh, life, learning how to handle this area of life responsibly. That's the kind of thing we need to do for our children. If we wait and trust the schools to do it or the churches to do it, we're going to wait too long. Now, his word in verses one, uh, verse 1 is very simple. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight. The verbs literally mean to incline. You have the picture of asking his son to bend his ear to listen carefully and not to miss a thing. Now, the purpose for wanting his son, wanting us to listen carefully, is given in verse 2. reason I want you to listen up, he says, is in order that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. The word for discretion there literally means purpose. I think what Solomon wants us to be able to do is to stick to our original purpose when we got married. Most married couples that I know of fully intend when they get married to remain faithful to their partners. That's their purpose. That's their goal. But somewhere along the line, they drift from that. Solomon wants to help us stay true to our original goal. And also, he says, he wants our lips to preserve knowledge. In other words, what Solomon realized is that how we talk about this whole area of life is very important. Uh, He wants our lips in conversation to preserve knowledge. That means we need to be careful about the kind of locker room conversations that we engage in. It's common after work, guys got a couple of beers under their belt to indulge in wife bashing and complain about how difficult and tough things are at home. Probably each of us know some woman who can't seem to stop complaining about how difficult it is to put up with her insensitive clod of a husband. This is something we need to watch carefully. Solomon's also aware that often extramarital affairs begin with simple verbal flirtation. Even there, we have to be careful that our lips preserve knowledge. Now, I think what Solomon is driving at here in this opening paragraph is he wants us to make our decision, if we're single, to make our decision about sexual purity now in the cold, hard light of day. If we are married, he wants us to make our decision to remain faithful to our spouses in the cold, hard light of day while we have our wits about us. If we wait to make this decision until we're in the backseat of somebody's car or until we're having a candlelight uh, dinner in her apartment with a little Johnny Mathis on the stereo, it's probably going to be too late. Make your decision now. I think it's important to realize that none of us, absolutely nobody in this room is invulnerable in this area. Every single one of us in this room has the potential to fall in this area. And if we think we're beyond this, if we think this is something that could never happen to us, we're in the most dangerous position that we could possibly be. When Howard Hendricks was here at a pastor's conference two years ago, he told us that he knew personally of around 100 Christian leaders who had experienced moral failure in their lives. And he asked each one of these men, did you ever think it could happen to you? And unanimously, without exception, all 100 of these men said, no, I never thought it could happen to me. If you've been following the news this weekend, you realize that the very man who blew the whistle on the PTL thing is himself 
probably guilty of exactly the same thing. We must take heed, those who stand, lest we fall. Now, he explains in verses 3 through 6 why it's so important that we make this decision now. And that is, first of all, in verse 3, that if we wait to make this decision, we'll cave in, that the temptation will be too strong for us. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The word for adulteress here is an interesting one. Literally, it just means a stranger. What Solomon is suggesting is that every woman who is not my wife, in some profound sense, is to remain a stranger to me. There are some set and fixed limits to the kind of intimacy that I will allow myself to develop with any woman who is not my wife. I think it would be a good rule of thumb for every married man in this room to make a pledge never to share his marital struggles with another woman. You know, unless she's like 75 and wears a hairnet or something like that. Because <laughs> we have to be... We have to be careful in this regard. Now, the reason, he says, is that the lips of an adulteress drip honey. And the first time I read that, it sounded kind of gross. You want to clean that up before we go any further? But what he means by that is that uh, adultery is something which is sweet. It's enticing. It's intoxicating. It's attractive. It's appealing. It seems to offer so much in the way of stimulation and pleasure. Once the hormones kick into overdrive, it's too late. Once the ecstatic cling principle goes into uh, operation, it's too late. You're sunk. So it reminds us that the physical attraction of an affair can be overwhelming. But also in the end of verse 3, he reminds us that the emotional attraction of an affair can be overwhelming. Her speech is smoother than oil. In other words, you might run into someone who says all the right things. A woman who is so sensitive and so understanding and knows how hard it must be to have to put up with the kind of situation you have at home and massages your ego and tells you how strong and manly she thinks you are. Or a man who comes along who's so sensitive and affectionate and responsive and so much different than the insensitive clod that you are married to at home. And that kind of thing goes down real easy and it can develop an emotional attraction, a magnetism that's very difficult to resist. So that's the first reason. We need to be, make this decision now because if we wait till we're faced with a temptation, it'll probably be too late. Now, the second reason we need to make this decision now, he points out in verses 4 through 6, is that affairs never work out. But in the end, she, that is the one whose lips dripped honey, in the end she is bitter as gall. Gall was an oil that was a bitter oil derived from an herb in the Middle East. So that which began with a taste of honey ends with a bitter, bitter aftertaste. She is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. So he says it's great while it lasts, but it never lasts. And what began as something so exotic and erotic and stimulating and tantalizing ends in bitterness and emptiness and heartache and despair. It's just as if uh, she had taken a double-edged sword, run it into your gut, and begun to twist the thing. That's the kind of pain you will experience at the end of one of these. So he says it's just not worth it. It doesn't work out. makes an interesting point in verse 6 about someone who is willing to engage in an affair with you. This is someone who gives no thought... To the way of life. The word to give thought there means to weigh out. In other words, here's a person who's simply not 
thinking clearly. They're not thinking this whole thing through. They haven't weighed out the consequences of what they're about to do. Solomon says if you put in one pan of the scales the momentary, uh, the momentary temporary pleasure you will experience and put in the other pan of that same scale all of the heartache and the bitterness and the guilt and the loneliness that results, says there's no comparison. But this other person isn't thinking that clearly. So Solomon says you have to be the one that does the thinking for the both of you. The word for paths there in verse 6 is a word that was also used to describe wagon tracks. So it's a fitting term for a course of life, a habit pattern. You can go out east of Boise, you can see the ruts in the desert floor of the Oregon Trail as Conestoga wagon after wagon passed across that same stretch of floor and wore ruts into the desert soil. Now what Solomon says is someone who's willing to have an affair with you, their wagon tracks are crooked. You had an aerial view, they'd be wandering all over the desert. No direction, no purpose. And yet Solomon says they're completely unaware of that. So you have to be the one that's thinking clearly. It's got your head screwed on straight. So many people, after they come out of one of these affairs, will just kick themselves and say, how could I have been so stupid? How blinded I was. I just wasn't thinking clearly. So Solomon says, now's the time to start thinking straight. So that's his first word in verses 1 through 6, is to listen up, pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he has two major points he wants his son, wants us to understand. The first he develops in verses 7 through 14. Now that he's got our attention, the first thing he says to us is that we are to flee immorality. Verse 7 and 8. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Now, simply put, his word of counsel in verse 8 is that we are physically, physically, as much as is possible, to keep as far away from temptation as we can. Uh, He says, don't dabble with it, don't toy with it, don't see how close to the fire you can get without being burned. Physically, logistically, to the degree that it is in your power, keep yourself as far away from temptation, sexual temptation, as you possibly can. had a conversation not too long ago with a young uh, single man who was struggling to stay pure in his relationship with his girlfriend. And so we discussed together some of their failures in the not-too-distant past. And what we began to realize through our conversation is that their slips occurred almost invariably in the same set of circumstances when his roommates were out of town for the weekend. And so that was the solution that we developed together. He pledged never to spend time with his girlfriend at his apartment when his roommates were gone for the weekend. Now that's what Solomon is talking about, physically to keep yourself out of compromising situations to the degree that it's in your control. It's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. You ever notice that? Because he understands that there are certain circumstances in which the temptation may be too strong for us came across a bumper sticker not too long ago that paraphrased that by saying, Lord, lead me not into temptation. I can find it myself. And uh, that's true. That's why we need to be careful. Now, to borrow a phrase, Solomon's counsel to us in this area is just say no. Uh, To quote uh, Spuds McKenzie, know when to say when. Just realize there is no safe sex outside of marriage. If you need some help in turning down people who are 
giving you the come on, I came across a newspaper article in which several suggestions were given. I'll pass these along to you for future usefulness. Someone uh, sidles up to you and says, uh, you look bored. The proper response is, no, but I have a feeling I will be soon. (laughs) Or if someone sidles up to you and says, uh, I like the perfume you're wearing, what is it? Proper response is pest repellent, and it doesn't seem to be working. (laughs) If uh, they approach you and say, I'll respect you in the morning, say, good, then I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) And if somebody sidles up to you and says, want a party? Proper response is, no, actually, I'm waiting for something a little closer to the top of the food chain. So just say no. Now this means that we need to pay attention to the silent alarm bells that go off in the back of our minds. If we see a relationship that has this potential that seems to possibly be headed in that direction, then that's the time to back off, to back away, to back out of that relationship, no matter how innocent it seems to be at the time. If the smoke alarm goes off, get out of the house before it burns down. I think Solomon is suggesting it's just dangerous to be physically alone with a woman who is not your wife because affairs often begin quite simply and quite innocently. I read a quite transparent article this last week from a woman who is currently in a very responsible position of Christian leadership, and she told a story about something that happened to her when she was in college. She was married at the time to a husband who was godly, who was a good husband, who loved her, cared for her, And one day into one of her classrooms came a good-looking young man. She discovered uh, soon that this man had just met the Lord, was full of questions about his newfound faith. And so he began to ask her many questions about the basics of Christian faith. And she was drawn to his magnetism and his obvious heart for the Lord. And so they began to develop a friendship, began to share bag lunches on the lawn on campus, to have coffee together in the student union even did some double dating together, his, her husband and his girlfriend. And she realized that gradually things were beginning to shift from an innocent, helpful friendship, and there was another dynamic that was beginning to work. But she kept justifying the continuation of this friendship because it seemed to be so helpful to him. And then the day came where he actually put the move on her, and she was fortunately panicked, freaked out, and fled and cut off the relationship at that point. But the reason she wrote that article is to remind us how subtly and how innocently we can get into these relationships which can compromise us morally. So we need to lock the door before the horse gets out of the barn. Now, not only do we need to protect ourselves physically, Solomon would say, but if you back up to the end of chapter 4, you'll see that he also tells us we need to protect ourselves mentally. He says in verse 23, and it's probably in that paragraph that the real flow of thought here starts, He says in 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So he'd say to the men that are present here, don't fantasize about other women and stay away from material, books, magazines, movies that encourage you to fantasize about other women. He would say the same thing to the women that are in this room. Fantasy can be just as much a problem for women as it can be for men. I know some women, for instance, who've had to stop reading romantic novels 
because the heroes in these romantic novels put their own husbands to shame and they invite an unfavorable kind of comparison. You know, the heroes in the romantic novels are suave, sophisticated, get their suits from Brooke Brothers every time they make love. It's the 4th of July. And she gets through with a passage like that and glances over to her couch potato husband who hasn't shaved in three days and the comparison simply doesn't wash. So Solomon says we have to guard our hearts because it's the wellspring of life. In other words, he says the place where affairs begin is not in the office but in the heart. That's where they begin. That's where we need to exercise very much caution. In fact, what Solomon says is don't even think about it. A friend of mine was telling me uh, several years ago she had her daughter in the front seat of a car along with a friend of her daughter's. They were all buckled in their seat belts in the front seat of the car. Her daughter was right next to her. And as she was driving down the road, her daughter reached out to grab the steering wheel, which obviously would be dangerous. And so Jan, in very stern terms, immediately rebuked her, said, don't even think about it. There was a moment of silence, and the friend said, Jan, she's thinking about it. <laughs> and, uh, that's Solomon's point. Just don't even think about it. And have people around you who will catch you if you do, to whom you can be accountable. Now, in verses 9 through 14, he gives us three reasons why we ought to physically and mentally stay away from sexual temptation. First of all, in verse 9, he says you run the risk of being used and dumped on. Lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. In other words, you run the risk of discovering that the one to whom you've given yourself in this extramarital affair is someone who has used you, manipulated you, exploited you for their own purposes, and then discarded you like a disposable uh, napkin when they're done. So he says you run that risk. The word for strength can also be translated dignity. In other words, he says if you engage in one of these affairs, you give away your dignity, you give away your manhood, you give away your womanhood. There's something undignified about a grown man or grown woman skulking around to sneak in these trysts with a lover. And if you're caught, there's a tremendous loss of respect on the part of your family, part of your friends. It's a loss of tremendous loss of dignity. David Roper reminded me this week of a story that he told uh, several years ago along this line. Uh, it was a story about a man who had gone to Seattle, a Christian man who had gone to Seattle on business, uh, visited his daughter who was going to college there. And one night he was in his uh, hotel room and he thought, you know, no one will be the wiser. So he arranged with a hotel desk to have a call girl sent to his room, awaited with anticipation the knock on the door. And when he opened the door, he greeted his own daughter who was working her way through college as a prostitute. Now, can you imagine the loss of dignity, the total humiliation and shame and embarrassment of that moment? Solomon says, don't do it. The risk is too great. You lose your dignity and your manhood. Second reason in verse 10 is quite practical. He says it's a tremendous waste of money. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. Start adding up the flowers, the motel tabs, the restaurant bills, the jewelry. It adds up to a tremendous waste of resources that properly belong to your family. Sometimes this can be catastrophic. I uh, found out this uh, last week about a couple, a man who'd had an affair, which he terminated seven years ago, 
But in order to finance this thing, he'd run all of their charge accounts completely up to the limit. And they've spent seven years trying to dig out from under that hole. Lost their house in the process. He's repented of it. Their marriage is back together. But there's a tremendous financial penalty that they're still paying to this day. There's another man I know of who was an elder at a Bible church in Northern California. And his friends couldn't understand why, when he reached retirement age, he just didn't retire and enjoy the good life. And they subsequently found out that he burned through his entire pension financing this affair with a mistress, had no retirement plan to fall back on. Solomon says, don't do it. It's a tremendous waste of money. It'll endanger your own financial security and that of your family. And then in verses 11 through 14, the third reason to stay away from it, he says, is you will live to regret it. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent may possibly there in verse 11 be a reference to the ravages of venereal disease, which was common in Solomon's day. You will say in verse 12, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. So it says the day is going to come. When you'll live to regret it, you'll look back and you'll groan at how you've thrashed your life and how you've trashed it, how much you've thrown away. And you'll even remember back to the times when there were people who came alongside you and tried to talk you out of it. A pastor or a friend or someone in your family who pleaded with you and you stiff-armed them, rejected what they were trying to do for you. You'll look back and you will regret it. came across a letter not too long ago that really captures the sense of loss and regret says, I want it known to the public that I made mistakes all through my marriage to Linda. I said things that weren't right. I battered and abused her both physically and verbally. I was unfaithful to her. I was unfair in the property settlement. I acted like a fool. I am lower than the ground I walk on. I have to live the rest of my life now without the person I truly love and that used to love me with no chance to undo the wrong I've committed. I lost the best thing that ever happened to me, my best friend. People, don't take your marriage for granted like I did. Divorce is not just a seven-letter word. Solomon says the risk is too great. He points out that this happened when he was in the midst of the assembly. It's a vivid picture in verse 14. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. In other words, he pictured himself standing right on the edge of a precipice. One step away, one more step, he falls into the abyss and all is lost. And he says he came to this place right in the midst of the assembly. That is, in the middle of the assembly of God's people who were gathered together for worship. The implication is that none of them knew how close he was to stepping into the abyss. And I'm not too naive to think that there may be somebody who's here this morning that's right in that same place. You're in the midst of the assembly, and yet you are one step away from total catastrophe. One more step, and you will illustrate the law of gravity. Solomon says, back away from the edge. Back off. If there's a relationship you need to terminate, then do it today. Get right with God. So that's his sum in verses 7 through 14. Flee immorality. Then in verses 15 through 23, he has a positive word of counsel to us. And that positive word of counsel is to love your wife. Cultivate a lifelong love affair 
with your own wife. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. He uses the metaphor of a cistern, which was a a receptacle that was dug out of the rock as a receptacle for fresh rainwater so that the fresh, pure rainwater could be stored. He uses the metaphor of a well which has sunk deep into the earth to draw out of the earth the fresh water contained there. He uses the imagery of a, of a spring which comes out of a hillside, again, uh, giving fresh, pure water. And these are the kind of metaphors that he uses, a fountain which comes up and provides this kind of fresh, cool water. He says that's how you uh, are to view your wife or you are to view your husband as a cistern from which you may drink to satisfy your needs. A picture of something which is cool and pure and refreshing. Solomon's words is drink only from your own cistern. So not only flee immorality, Solomon says, but cultivate, work on developing a lifelong love affair with your own partner. Learn to be satisfied. Learn to be content with the sexual relationship that you have with your partner. If there are problems of some kind, be committed to work through them, serving your spouse until those problems are corrected and your relationship in that dimension is once again restored to something which is fulfilling. So he says, learn how to receive and to give pleasure to your partner. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. I won't take the time to turn there. just remind you of what he says to husbands and wives in that passage. He indicates that when a husband and wife get married that they... Uh, acquire a responsibility to their partner. In fact, he uses the word debt. He says, let the husband pay his debt to his wife and let the wife pay her debt to her husband. In other words, I as a husband have a responsibility, an obligation to my wife in this dimension of our marriage. And she likewise does to me. Now, the responsibility, Paul says, is to learn how to give pleasure to your partner. Learn how to understand their sexuality. Learn how to understand their sexual needs and response and be a servant of the gospel to them in that area. Give yourself and your marriage primarily to satisfying your partner rather than being satisfied. In fact, he says a very interesting thing there that a wife's body does not belong to her but to her husband. And a husband's body does not belong to his wife. In other words, our bodies are designed by God to be an instrument that we can use to minister to our partner. So Paul encourages us to accept that responsibility and to work on it. Uh, There are several good books in this area, books by Ed Wheat, Intended for Pleasure, by Tim LaHaye, The Act of Marriage. There's no excuse for any sort of ignorance in this uh, area of life on the part of believers. Uh, Learn everything you can about how to satisfy your partner, communicate, talk to them, understand how you can give and receive pleasure to your partner. 
This is what Paul, I think, is implying in verse 18 when he says, May your fountain be blessed. Well, blessed by, by whom? Well, I think Solomon would say, blessed by you. Be someone who nurtures and cares and tends for that fountain. Uh, ask what you can do to bless your partner, to bless your fountain. Quarter as you did at the beginning. Send her flowers, take her out to dinner, do all the things that you did. Don't stop running just because you've caught the bus. And notice, <laughs> notice how in verse 19, how explicit and yet tasteful the scriptures are about the sexual relationship. A loving doe, a graceful deer. That's how a husband is to picture his wife all throughout their marriage as a loving doe and a graceful deer. The word for deer there literally is mountain goat. I tried that out on Deb. How would you like to be called a graceful mountain goat? She said, deer is better. Stick with deer. But, <laughs> but that's the picture. You know, the picture in Solomon's mind is of a nimble, graceful doe bounding across an open meadow. Solomon says, that's the picture you're always to have of your wife. So that you can rejoice, in verse 18, in the wife of your youth. He makes it clear there that uh, a marriage does not have to become something which is old and jaded and tired, nor does the sexual dimension of a marriage have to go through that same phase. That it's possible to find joy and pleasure in the wife of your youth, even as a middle-aged, even as an old man. You can enjoy that marriage more than you did even at the beginning. I had the privilege of attending a surprise birthday party for uh, Barbara Levitt uh, several weeks ago her 60th birthday party, and it was a delight, of course, to see how surprised uh, she was and how overwhelmed with the kind of affection that her friends were showing to her. But what gave me the greatest pleasure of the whole evening was watching Claude's reaction to all of this. If any of you were there, you remember that he had this silly smile just plastered all over his face for the entire evening, just basking in total delight at the kind of attention and affection an affection that his wife was receiving. Married for 37 years, but I saw in that man a man who was rejoicing in the wife of his youth, had cultivated a lifelong love affair with her and was reaping the benefits of it. Now he says in verses 16 and 17 that if you neglect your wife in this regard, she may look elsewhere for comfort and attention. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. In other words, he says, if you do not love your wife, if you do not love your husband like you did at the beginning, you run the risk of making it possible for them to look for that kind of attention somewhere else. So Solomon says the best defense, the best way to keep your wife or your husband from stepping out on you is to love them up. The best defense away from home is a good offense at home. And then in verses 21 through 23, he gives us a final reason to do this. Why should we flee immorality? Why should we cultivate a lifelong love affair with our wife, with our partner? He says, first of all, because somebody's watching. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. In other words, all of the sneaking around and the secret trysts and the subtlety and cleverness is to no avail because somebody's watching. Your ways are in full view before the Lord. You play games with God, Solomon says, you lose because he always has the last move. And then secondly, he reminds us in 22 and 23 that we will pay a bitter price for it. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. 
It's a vivid picture of a man's own folly, his own sin, wrapping him around with cords and him bound in a bitter sort of bondage by his own behavior. That's generally God's punishment in this area. He simply lets us reap the consequences of our own behavior. So he says, don't do it. What seemed to offer such promise and such liberty and such pleasure at the beginning results in such tremendous bitter bondage. What I'd like to have you do as we close is I'd like to have all of you, if you would, close your eyes and uh, bow your heads with me. And I'm going to ask you in the quiet of your own heart to make a response to Solomon's counsel here. First of all, if you are in this room and you are single, I would like to ask you in the quiet of your heart right now to make a commitment to the Lord that by His grace and with His strength you will remain pure sexually until you're married. Secondly, if you are a husband here this morning, I would like to ask you in the quiet of your own heart to make a pledge to the Lord that by His grace, with His help, with His power, you will remain faithful to the wife of your youth to the wife to whom you are married. If you are a wife that is here this morning, I would like to ask you to make the same commitment in the quiet of your heart before the Lord that you, by God's grace, with His help, will remain faithful to your partner for the rest of your life. Secondly, for husbands, I would like to ask you in a similar way to make a quiet pledge in your own heart before the Lord that you will seek by His grace to grow in satisfying the physical needs of your wife. And if you are a wife, I'd like to ask you to make the same pledge, that you, by God's grace, will grow in satisfying the sexual needs of your husband. Father, in many ways, this is a very sobering passage. We see so much wreckage around us, so much demolition in lives and homes and marriages because of adultery and uh, extramarital affairs. And Lord, I pray for every single one of us in this room that you would remind us of how vulnerable we are in this area, that we would not be tempted to pride or to security or to a sense of arrogance about our untouchability in this area. Keep us all humbly dependent upon you for the strength and power to say no. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to flee immorality in all of its forms, to stay away from even the mental fantasy which can be so destructive. And secondly, Lord, I pray that you'll help all of us in this room who are married to go back to work and cultivating a lifelong love affair with the mates that you've brought into our lives. We need your help for this, Lord. We ask for your strength and your provision, your forgiveness for the times we fail. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.